Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown and the final episode in this series on suicide prevention. So today's episode is really focusing on you. How do we conquer hopelessness and helplessness and the feeling that we are exhausted? Not just a feeling, but really the experience. I am delighted to bring Dr. Kimia Saraf to the podcast today. Dr. K, to her friends and clients alike, completed her medical degree and Master of Public Health at the University of Utah School of Medicine, her residency in internal medicine at Barnes Jewish Hospital, Washington University School of Medicine. The arc of her two-plus decade career has included medical practice, public health program development, nonprofit leadership, business ownership, multiple board positions, trauma mitigation work, and farming. Dr. K founded Lodestar in 2016, specializing in trauma-responsive coaching methods for physician colleagues experiencing high levels of burnout, vicarious trauma, and moral injury. Her background in public health and trauma led her to create a unique trauma-responsive coaching paradigm, particularly well-suited for frontline professionals working in environments of chronic toxic stress who directly experience the multivariate ways that vicarious and secondary trauma shows up in daily life. Her program has been applied across multiple industries for both leadership training and in the creation of trauma-responsive cultures for hard-driving, highly skilled professionals in any industry. Kimia is an authentic, compelling storyteller and a powerful keynote speaker. She is the recipient of numerous awards for her leadership and vision and was an AMA Women Physicians Inspiration Award honoree in 2021. She is renowned for her boundless compassion, wisdom, and humor. Please join me in welcoming Kimia Saraf to the podcast. Hi, Kimia. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing today? I'm great, and I so appreciate your time. I know you're a very, very busy person, so I'm, I'm grateful for the time that you're taking to do this with us today. Well, I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity because this is, this is the work. This is the work that we have in front of us and, and sharing um, resources and information and, and understanding and really just being in this together, I think, is a big part of how we move through this time. I think there was a psychiatrist, um, Ned Hallowell. He did a lot of work on ADHD. And one thing I took away from a conference about worrying, he said, never worry alone. So um, I, I think when stuff is tough, it's it's always nice to have somebody to be with. So thank you for being with me today. Absolutely. Well, as we get started, I thought maybe you could just share with listeners just a little bit about your path into medicine and into the work that you're doing now. I, I love that question. The path into medicine would probably take us back to birth, though. So I'm not sure how <laughs> much time we have my family, my mom in particular will joke that um, I came out of the womb with a tiny little feminist fist raised and 
the uh, umbilical cord wrapped around my neck like a like a stethoscope. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a great visual. A nice image. Um, and and the truth of the matter is, I I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't want to be a doctor. And even more specific than that, that, which is a vision that I have now from five decades later, is there's never been a time in my life where I didn't want to be a healer, Mm. which is a bit nuanced, I think, and and probably resonates with a lot of your pediatricians who listen to what it is that you talk about or other physician colleagues who listen, is that that really is oftentimes underneath it for us. And so the path into medicine and into healthcare in general was a pretty straight one for me. I went into college knowing that's what I wanted to do. Um, I spent a time before going to medical school getting a degree in public health because it was so interesting to me. And my interest in that was born out of a conversation that I had uh, with an archaeology student, actually. Yeah, that's a, that's a story for another time. Uh, so I ended up in public health before medical school, and that is important only because it framed my medical education just one paradigm click differently, I think, than it did for some of my uh, medical student colleagues who were going through at the same time. Because of my public health background, I always saw the patient in context context of their family, context of their community, you know, much broader context. It wasn't just the patient in front of me. And it wasn't until I was out of medical school, probably a couple years out of residency, that I began to realize that I I just saw it differently, that that wasn't everyone's experience with their patients. And so when we moved from, we were in St. Louis at WashU for that final stage of training, when we moved from there to Springfield, And I began focusing more and more on public health and actually started a public health initiative in our community called Gen H Kids. That really began taking on sort of primary importance for me because I believed then and I still believe now that most of what we consider preventive care happens in our day-to-day lives, not in our office visits, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, by the time a patient walks through the office door, what we're doing is screening for the presence or absence of disease. I'm an internist. So that's, that's really what we're doing in internal medicine. Pediatrics, you're also looking for normal, healthy development and all kinds of other neat things. But really, as an internist, as a primary care adult practitioner, you're just looking for the presence or absence of disease. Mm-hmm. Hopefully giving some vaccines that are needed as well along the way. And it's the day-to-day choices that we're making, whether we know we're making those choices, if we know how to make those choices that inform our health. So fast forward to 2014 and my eldest son, I have four sons, my eldest son was uh, 13 years old at the time, tearing through my house in his underwear, like 13-year-old boys in my house anyway tend to do. And I noticed one whole side of his body was black and blue. Just Mm. absolutely black and blue. And I was before school and I called him over and I looked at it and I had that split second knowing that Dr. Mama sometimes get that what I was looking at was leukemia. Mm. And uh, sure enough, within hours, because we went straight to the pediatrician who gave me that look that 
doctors sometimes exchange over the examining table. And within a few hours, we had CDC confirmation. And your life was turned up. And life changed. You know, it turned inside out. Yeah. White count of 130,000. I I joked that it was a single solitary platelet working as hard as it could. And we were in ICU. We were in pediatric ICU. So I have the incredible good fortune of being able in that moment to step away from everything, um, all work obligations in order to care for my son. And I recognize what an incredible privilege that is for him, for me, for my husband, who's also a physician. And so the next two and a half, almost three years were dedicated to journeying with Joseph through his experience with high-risk ALL. He's fine, by the way. He's absolutely, I should have opened with that. He's absolutely A-OK off as a senior in college now. Mm. Um, And when we sort of emerged from that, several things had fundamentally changed for me. One was that as part of, under under duress, I like to tease that it was under duress, a good dear friend of mine, also a physician, had had grabbed me up and said, come on, we're going to go get some, we're going to take a weekend and do some CME. And what she took me to was not CME at all. It was actually a intensive in coaching, which I don't think I would have gone to had I known that what she was taking me to was uh, a coaching intensive. I think I didn't have an understanding or I had a misunderstanding really of what coaching, physician coaching is. And it was very transformative for me, the experience, both from, you know, sort of a personal slash professional perspective, but also in opening up for me a whole new skill set I didn't know was a skill set. I didn't know existed, let alone that it was something that I needed to learn and practice and that would provide something that was really needed by my colleagues. And so I pursued coaching skills in the same way that, you know, I think we physicians pursue all new skill acquisition, you know, all in, and came to really value it as additive to the skills that I already had. And as I began coaching more and more of uh, our colleagues through burnout, they were coming to coaching with burnout or were being referred to coaching by their institutions for burnout, what became very, very clear to me was that what I was seeing wasn't really burnout at all, or it was something more than burnout is probably a truer statement. And it had overlap with everything that I knew already about how trauma shows up. And so this really got me thinking because you know, I talked about the public health work that I had been engaged in in Gen H Kids, and we had been very mindful and deliberate about building trauma-informed practices into our programming, right? Ensuring that our staff, ensuring that our board, ensuring that our programs themselves were trauma-informed. So I had, a, I had familiarity with ACEs and with the impact of it, with Vander Kolk's work around embodied trauma with the work of Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart and her work about historical trauma and First Nations peoples. And I really became interested in what is this that I 
think I'm seeing showing up in our colleagues because the symptoms were all there. Phenotypically, this looked like trauma, like the activation or reactivation of trauma. And of course, a foundational to being trauma-informed or trauma-responsive is that you don't dig, right? You're not digging for people's trauma sources. You're holding space. You're recognizing it when it shows up. And you're holding the space for it. And what I noticed was that when I simply began applying trauma-informed principles and practices to the way that I coached, there were incredible outcomes, relief from the sense of exhaustion and burnout, capacity to enter back into and engage in imagination and aspiration, a restoration of a sense of choice in what they were doing. And Yes, absolutely. I have a question. I have a question. Just so in thinking about, you know, you have a doctor in front of you and they've been referred or somehow a a relationship has been established. I mean, do you formally say a lot of people have histories of trauma, have you? And does that inform what's going on or does it just happen? It's a a wonderful question. And the answer is it's a both and answer. I don't ask specifically about trauma histories because. I am not a trauma interventionalist. I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a psychotherapist. And people are not coming to me for psychiatric intervention or for therapy. They are coming because they are oftentimes in intense pain and they want to coach towards something, right? They want some sort of outcome they're looking. You know, physicians are very goal-oriented. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We want to move towards something, right? And so, you know, if we think about a purely therapeutic relationship on one hand and a purely coaching relationship on the other, in a therapeutic relationship, I am the expert, right? Someone is coming to me as a clinician, as the expert, as the diagnostician, and the person who will follow that diagnosis with a treatment plan and hold the outcome. In coaching, We like to say that the client is capable, competent, and whole, and they are coming for an expert in curiosity, someone who can help to surface their own wisdom, their own ask questions that might open up new possibilities, maybe hold with them some accountability markers along the way. But really, this is about thought partnership and the client holds the outcome because it's the client's outcome. Now, there's always been overlap in the Venn diagram, right? I mean, there just always has been. And so what I notice is that my comfort with the concept of we all carry wounds and recognition and holding space for when those wounded places show up, whatever that expression of it might be, anger, tears, exhaustion, unbearable stuckitude. I hear that one a lot. Yeah, I'm just unbearably stuck. I can't get <laughs> I love that. And I've never been in this place before where I, I don't care. I'm apathetic or I'm losing my temper in different places, right? This really got me thinking about what underlies the trauma of these times, right? Because we know that trauma is more than just an event. There is a cumulative and compounding impact of multiple traumas. As it turns out, there is also a cumulative and compounding impact of 
chronic toxic stress. And what makes that worse, what increases the intensity of it are things like a real or perceived loss of control, unrelenting nature of it, absent opportunities to rest or restore oneself, a lack of access to the resources needed to do the job or to whatever, disconnection from a sense of purpose, disconnection from one another, sense of being isolated and alone. And all of these things pre-pandemic were already showing up in so many of our colleagues. And then the pandemic hit. So we had uh, developed this way of coaching that was yielding good success in one-on-one coaching, had begun teaching that sort of trauma-informed style of coaching. What does it mean to be trauma-informed, trauma-disruptive, trauma-mitigating in how you coach to other coaches, physician coaches who were engaging in similar work and had developed that curriculum? And then the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, not only were we being inundated with phone calls, but also from a institutional perspective, right? Lots of calls from institutions saying, come in and do resiliency work. Please come in and do resiliency training, resiliency building, resiliency capacity stuff with our people, which the first couple of times sounded proactive and very quickly revealed itself to be come in and tell our people what else they need to do in order to stay afloat so that I can extract more from them. Yeah. I, I just think about the course of the pandemic, I think, changed. I mean, initially there was this, first of all, not knowing, you know, what is this terrible threat? And then like this constant checking, I remember going to my phone like a gazillion times a day looking to see what did the CDC said, does anybody know what this is? And then being so afraid for my patients, but also for me personally, am I going to bring this home? Am I going to, you know, is my husband going to get it? Am I going to die alone in an ICU? I remember one night just sobbing almost hysterically, I'm going to die from this and I'm going to die alone. And and then it was sort of like, okay, then I can pull myself together. And it was, uh, you know, maybe I can, by asking other people, how are you? And kind of doing that, you know, and then it was the the pride of being a helper, you know, thanking the healers. And then the vaccine came out and then we were terrible people and we were saying people should mask. And then it just all hell broke loose. And suddenly the helpers are now the enemy. And it's just such a horrible wounding from that. There was a devolution, right? As we moved through the pandemic, I just made that word up. I don't think it actually exists. But as I was listening to you talk, I always think of evolution as being progressive. And what really happened was a globally terrorizing event in the beginning. And for all the things that you named, it was unknown. We had no idea how it might impact children. We had no idea how, what really was the mortality associated with it, right? Um, we didn't even really know what the R-naught was. We, we just were struggling to get a handle on almost every component of it. And there was that initial sort of coming together in the terror and a willingness to listen to the most protective measures that we could provide, right? So we absolutely stepped in to in defense of each other 
from a stance of how can we best protect one another. The brain, unfortunately, abhors uncertainty. And I think it was the combination of that continuous, unrelenting activation of our threat detection system, because it wasn't a one and done. It was, as you correctly point out, it was daily. It was second to second, moment to moment. So our threat detection systems were on such high alert for such a prolonged time. And the threat did not diminish or decrease for such a long period of time that our capacity to hold that uncertainty began to wane. Our collective capacity. Now, Physicians, scientists probably had a greater capacity to hold the uncertainty for longer because that's the training. We're practiced in that. But I think humans writ large are not necessarily practiced in holding uncertainty and complexity and nuance for months and months and months on end. And so what the brain begins to do is it begins to seek clarity which often means a binary answer. We just couldn't stay there anymore. And as more people began looking for the the single answer, we began to see this sort of polarization of either this is, we're all going to die, or this is overblown. You crashed the world for no reason. Right. And almost like, you all made that up. This we're gonna we're gonna ignore yes. reality. It's so funny as you're talking about this. Um, I've done a couple podcasts with one of my friends, Zakia Olivey, and she's a child psychiatrist. And we were talking about how kids manage stress and uh, fear, and that for young kids, they are very self centered. They're very like. It's about me. And so our job as adults is to say, I care for you. I'm safe. I'll keep you safe. And then the older kids, the sort of elementary, middle school, they're asking lots of questions. They want to know the whys. And so the reassurance for them is facts. And that that gives them a sense of they can have some sense of control. Like if I know this is true. So, you know, scientists are working on a vaccine that will keep us safe okay, then I feel better. And that teenagers are looking at sort of, you know, um, bonding together with each other in ways to conquer the world. And so that tremendous amount of altruism, sometimes naivete, but that's okay, because if they knew, then they wouldn't go do it. And so as you're talking, I'm sort of thinking about devolving from altruism and the greater good to the facts don't even count. Now I'm just concerned about myself. And now I'm a toddler and I just want you to keep me safe. And clearly the stuff that you're telling me about vaccines and masking, that doesn't feel safe. So I'm going to go with this other group that's saying this is all BS and it's just made up and it's not real. So don't be scared. I think that that's a perfect, actually, description of, of what we witnessed and so understandable too. Because Mm -hmm. if we don't feel safe, everything else stops. We think teenagers, and then you go into adulthood, and then you're fully developed. And the truth of the matter is we're at our core, we carry all of those things, right? 
And so when you strip and strip and strip away, if we don't feel safe, nothing else. Well, I mean, that's right. Maslow's, you know, hierarchy. And yeah. Yep. You're right. You're right at the base. Hierarchy of needs. Right. Yeah. If the amygdala is saying you are not safe, there's no capacity to learn. There's no capacity for anything else. All you will do is seek safety. And so when, just like with children, right? And I could not agree more that the first and most primary thing that we do with children is establish for them that they are safe. And they are safe because the adults, the grownups in the room will keep them safe, right? And then we, as they age, we provide them with the data. And if we're wise, from the beginning, we provide them with the understanding that the data will change and that as the data changes, that we'll make sure to communicate that with them in a way that they can understand. But you have to begin with the data will change. You don't present it as this is the end of it. It's we don't know and we will keep you safe as we move through this together. Yeah, the, and we have to change and adapt. And, you know, and thinking about sort of where we are right now, there's still this very feels like divisive and and more information isn't really helping like just to keep saying this is safe, this is what you got to do, that 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 isn't working. So how do you meet people where they are, where it's fear and denial to say, gosh, you must be scared? How, how do you sit with them in that while you're so intensely frustrated? Mm -hmm. Like, why don't you believe me? Why don't you trust me? You call me at two in the morning with your child with 102 temp and vomiting. You trust me then, but... Why not now? I think that the tool of curiosity is an underutilized superpower. Mm -hmm. I try, and I, I'm using the word try here because like everyone, I, I don't want to pretend that I don't also find it intensely frustrating and raging even sometimes for exactly the reasons that you're saying. You trust me with everything else. Why not this? And so I, I, I try very, very hard to fall back into what we have experienced is collective trauma. And this thing that's showing up right now is an expression of that collective trauma. And so from there, how can I be, how can I respond to that with curiosity and openness and space holding rather than counter reactivity? Yeah. And then there's, of course, I mean, I was at a meeting with pediatric leaders and heard people, I mean, they literally were testimonials of pain, fear. I mean, death threats, Absolutely. I mean, crazy stuff. Who would ever think a physician would be attacked by your very existence? And in fact, we, we have a meeting coming up in California and we're anticipating, you know, that there may be folks that are not happy about us being there. And and almost to the extent of like, I don't want to even have anybody know that I'm a pediatrician. I mean, this badge of honor that I've worn my whole career, so proud of now, it, you know, it's like a target on my back. Well, and so shifting, I think that's a perfect segue into shifting away from how do we engage with patients and the general public into how do we take care of ourselves, Yeah, right? How do we begin to take care of each other again in this moment? And what is it that we need, our colleagues need to 
re-engage or to continue to engage in the work at hand. Because it can't just be teeth gritting, fingernail holding on to, I do this because I have a sense of obligation to the work. We are hemorrhaging colleagues as a result of that approach. Colleagues hung in as long as humanly possible out of a sense of moral and ethical obligation to their patients, to the public, to their patients' parents, to their oaths. And the wounding cannot be ignored any longer. And so, you know, sort of how do we take care of each other so that we can continue to engage in this work wholly and healed rather than sort of, we're all the walking wounded right now. That's the task, I think, at hand. So in thinking about sort of that child model, you know, we need safety. Yeah. And I, you've talked about psychological safety. What, what's that? What does that look well, like? Well, psychological safety is a, is a phrase that gets tossed out all the time these days. And I think doesn't always come with a clear definition. And I have a pretty clear definition for it. There's a path, actually, towards psychological safety. And then there are tells, signs and signals we can watch for that let us know that people actually do feel psychologically safe when it's done, right? So psychological safety begins with inclusion safety, physical safety first, obviously. Uh, you know, physical safety is primary to all of this. So we can't even begin to talk about how we make people psychologically safe if they don't know that they are physically safe. So we have to begin with there. So we, I should mention that physical safety is primary. And I also, it's a really good place to point out that the brain interprets physical threat and social threat in exactly the same way. It doesn't differentiate between the threat of an apex predator. I, I call it the face-eating bear. It doesn't differentiate between the apex predator type of threat and the threat of being thrown out of community evolutionarily, those two things were equally dangerous. Evolutionarily, 17,000 years ago, those two things would get us equally dead at the end of the day, right? So yeah. we, we have this very highly, highly attuned threat detection system that scans continually for both. And this is part of what makes it both complex and understandable. Some of the reactions we're seeing, very understandable. So let's set physical safety aside and say that we can create physical safety. Psychological safety then begins with inclusion safety. And that is genuine inclusion, not come on in, we'll put up with you inclusion. Those are very different. The begrudging inclusion is not inclusion. Forced inclusion it feels like, well, the tribe. Yeah. I mean, this is the tribe. And I mean, I think that's the beauty of organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics. I mean, for me, knowing that there's 67,000 pediatricians that have my back. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that every one of those pediatricians holds every single value that I do, but I think we all hold the value of kids matter. We're the voice for kids. And so that to me, that's a, a professional tribe, mm -hmm. if you will. So I cling to that. I cling to that. Yes. Well, and so that is, it's very important because what happens if your place in that community is threatened? It activates that system and we begin behaving in ways that may look 
a little wonky, but are designed to protect. So the threat detection system, interestingly, though, reads both of these as physical threat. Even though this is social threat over here, threat of being thrown out of community, it activates the same pathways as physical threat. Fight the bear, flee the bear, right? And so the behavior that shows up is designed to keep you physically alive in the moment. It doesn't show up with the behaviors that are going to necessarily keep you in community, with the exception of perhaps a submit reaction, trauma reaction, right? Fawn trauma reaction, go along, get along, submit to the, the dominant culture, the dominant will. Most of what shows up, though, is this sort of fight, flight, and, and by design is to keep you physically alive, not interested in your professional standing or your career or your friendship with your neighbors or your marriage. It'll blow all of that up to keep you physically alive. But you're not really often encountering an apex predator. Most of what we're encountering is social threat. So if we begin with this idea that genuine inclusion, we want you, we need you, you don't have to look, sound, think, believe, act like me to be included. In fact, we need your differences in order to be more complete. How boring would it be if all 60,000 pediatricians thought the same way? believed exactly the same. There's no room for innovation then, right? We invite you in anyway because you're going to check my blind spots because I'm incomplete. Our group, our community is incomplete without your voice. That's inclusion. Please. But not, but not I'm going to beat you up if you, exactly. you don't believe what I believe. Exactly. Once we have that form of inclusion, that inclusion that says we're incomplete without you, please come help. Then what we have is learner safety. That's the next stage in this path towards genuine psychological safety. We have learner safety. People feel safe to learn. If you don't feel safe, if you don't feel included, learning stops. Then we have contributor safety. I've learned, I understand, I feel included. I can contribute something to this conversation. And then, and this is my favorite stage with my students, with my med students or my residents or young faculty, you get challenger safety. When students start challenging me, that's when I know they feel safe with me, right? And so the same thing in our boardrooms or in our organizations, challenger safety is very important because that is the leading edge of innovation. We're not in group think. We're actually looking for more expansive ways. And for leaders, it's very, very important that this psychological safety has been generated if you want true innovation. And this is really, really the danger of uh, homogenous groups. There's no room for challenge. So I feel like I can... <sighs> take a deep breath, like I'm safe now. You said there's a way to get safe. So when I'm thinking about, you know, my person now, you know, taking it down because, um, you know, this month is suicide prevention month and I've dedicated, you know, the last three episodes to thinking about, you know, when people are ultimately not safe. My sister, who is a, um, 
an attempt survivor, talked about, I read, how did she put it as, I just was exhausted. I was so tired. I just couldn't do it anymore. And we know that physicians are at the highest risk in professional groups of people at risk where you ultimately feel alone. There is no one or anything that can save me from how I feel. So how do we get away from that despair? I mean, are there actionable things? Like, what can I do? I mean, I know one of the the core things that you talk about is rest. You know, what what are the things? Like, are there some, like, basic, you have to do this in order to feel in any sense well, more than just yoga and going and getting a pedicure? Yeah, there are. and. I want to say first, I'm so glad your sister is with us still. Oh, me too. I know. I said that to her. You know, she, it was kind of a difficult conversation because it's so sensitive and it's so personal. And she wanted to tell her story. And now there's some vulnerability there. And yet, you know, I think the reason being 19 years later, she can say, I'm so glad I'm alive. And I think that's what people who are struggling with that despair, this pain that is unbearable is to know that it is unbearable right now, but I'll hold your hand. You'll come out on the other side and that it is life is worth living. And, you know, that's pretty, pretty powerful. I love the question that you asked because it's always a good place to get to is the discussion of, of what's, where's the hope? Right. And absolutely. And so (laughs) it's the only thing we got. Right. right? And so when we start looking at and and you saw this when I spoke that this continuum, we sort of touched on it, right, that there's stress, which is good and healthy for us. There's high stress even, which can be a growth and stretch experience. The right. I would call that medical school. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes even that becomes toxic at times, right? Yeah, yeah. So then the question becomes, if you're looking at this continuum and and the listeners can't see, but I've got my left hand up as, you know, as stress, and I'm going to hold my right hand out here as trauma. And if there's a continuum from stress to trauma, the question becomes, where do we disrupt it along that continuum? What disrupts it? And we begin to understand what disrupts it when we first understand what makes it worse. If we know what makes it worse, then we can reverse that in order to disrupt it. So what are the things that move us along the stress trauma continuum towards trauma? Unrelenting nature of it, right? That's a big one. No opportunities for rest and restoration, like true rest and restoration, not a pedicure. One of the biggest is loss of control real or perceived loss of control. And when it is unrelenting, we also have this sense of having lost control. We can't see or understand where we might get out of it. Lack of resources. Now you're starting to add them up in your head, right? Over the last couple of years of the pandemic. Lack of resources. I'm emotionally under-resourced. Okay. But we were physically under-resourced. We didn't have enough, not enough PPE, not enough ventilators, not enough doctors, not enough nurses, not enough time, not enough. That was the theme, under-resourced. And this is the place where I always also like to add that even if the resources exist, but the person doesn't know how to access the resource, that also is trauma-inducing. It moves along, right? So just the mere fact that there is a resource doesn't mean 
that that is not being experienced by the individual as a stressor because they may not know how to access it. Isolation and loneliness, disconnection, disconnection from others. So the pandemic really was a triple threat in that one. So what often happens is because we're hardwired for threat, for threat detection, sometimes that also means we're hardwired for negativity. We begin to tell a story. We have to be very, very cheerful of the stories we tell ourselves. They are incomplete at best. But one of the stories that I most often hear from physicians is, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who can't manage this. I'm the only one who's spending six hours a night pajama time charting. I'm the only one who is suffering from unbearable stuckitude. I'm the only one who looks one way at work, buttoned up, pulled together, chipper and friendly, and then comes home and is screaming like a lunatic at the kids at night. I'm the only one coming home and self-medicating myself to sleep. I'm the only one. That story is so poisonous. It's so dangerous. It feels like, I mean, I just think back to my training. It, it, it does give you I think partly sort of this sense of identity that I am needed and I am, and, but it's also the pressure of, I have to be the expert. I have to know the answers. Um, if not me, who, um, and, and it's interesting. Some of the things that you talk about, like loss of control, that feels like helpless, helplessness. That feels like hopelessness. Well, what are signs and symptoms of suicide? helplessness and hopelessness. Yes. There is no other way out. Yes. So so having said all that, what's the way out or at least the way up? Yeah. First and foremost, connect. If you yourself are not in a space to actually actively seek connection, receive the connection when it comes in your direction. We need to be actively connecting with each other. Who haven't you seen in a while? Who haven't you heard from in a while? Who haven't you touched base with in a while? Connection is one of the most trauma-disruptive, trauma-mitigating things that we can do, both for ourselves and for each other. I think that oftentimes physicians fear, well, it's a real and it's a perceived fear, right? So years ago, you know, sort of looking at why do, why are physicians so reluctant to seek um, therapy, to seek help? There's both real and perceived licensure risk around that, right? We've got to correct that. But the, there's also some, some misperception that if I start talking about the fact that I have problems, I'm going to end up, <laughs> somehow I'm going to dissolve from structure to soup. You know, I'm going to be uh, uh, sprawled out on the floor for the next five years, sucking my thumb in the fetal position because I'm carrying so much pain and there is no way, there is no resolution to this. So I'm just going to keep bottling it up and boxing it up and holding that and stuffing that energy down. And what is almost universally true is that when we begin to talk about our struggles, our pain, our frustration, our fear, it gets better almost instantly. There is power in naming and sharing. 
and there's no problem solving involved. Mm-hmm. Naming yeah. and sharing and saying, oh, wow, I hear that. It's interesting. I've worked a little bit with Vince Valetti, who wrote the ACEs study, and I, he said something to me that I've heard him say before that really stuck with me. And I think there's like an addendum to it. And that is when he was talking about trauma, the asking is in and of itself therapeutic because you can convey that this is not a shameful thing if we can talk about it. So the asking is in and of itself therapeutic. The flip side is the telling is in and of itself therapeutic. And me being able to share without judgment. In it, so I have to feel safe that I can share and that you don't think less of me. But now you, you know, you say, oh my gosh, I felt like that too. Or let me sit with you. It's interesting. I was just doing a, a little group meeting. It's very kind of how you connect with others. So in Michigan, we had a shooting, a school shooting and lost four, four children. Well, of course, there was Parkland and they lost I can't even remember the number. Awful, awful. Well, the Michigan chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, we reached out to the Florida chapter, or maybe they reached out to us and said, we've been through this and we know it's awful. What can we do together to support you? So they offered us lots of help and support, but we've also had this nice little group, call it kind of a wellness group. And we were just talking about this very thing, self-care. I mean, it's kind of a that doesn't really say what it is. But one of the doctors said, I've never heard it put like this. I thought it was just me. And just hearing that, no, it's not just you, made her feel better. It was kind of like, it's like a sigh, a relief that somehow I'm not broken. Self-compassion. I like that phrase so much more because self-compassion allows us also to extend compassion to others right? Mm -hmm. And there is a reason that the words me too are sacred. Sometimes we call it in Lodestar, we shorthand it to same, 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 right? Same, same, same. I'm here with you. I understand. And I'll sit with you. We don't have to fix it. We simply can hold it together yeah, and allow healing to happen in the narrative, which it does. And solutions or or aspiration to begin to surface. My term for this is slower, closer work. This isn't, there's no easy button. There's no shortcutting it. And it also isn't as drastic and it doesn't take the 10 years of dissolving from structure to soup that we often think it's going to take either. Right. Coming back though to the issue of suicidality, One thing I do really want to emphasize, especially this week, is ask each other. If you are noticing or intuiting that someone is in pain and in danger or might be in danger, it is okay to say, I'm worried and I just want to check in. Are you having any thoughts of hurting yourself? Because you matter to me and I'm here. And the other language, because this came up just recently, and and I know that there's this common myth of, if I ask, I'm going to plant those seeds, and that there's no evidence. So, I mean, if you take nothing away from this whole conversation, that it's okay if you ask somebody, are you having thoughts of killing themselves, that they're not going to go, oh, I guess that's what I'm going to do. I had never thought of that. Um, But I think the other phraseology that I've heard is, 
I don't know about you, but I know other folks, when they're going through what you're going through, have thoughts of killing themselves. Have you ever had those thoughts? And and the risk, of course, is that somebody's going to get mad at you, which may happen. They may get offended. How could you think that? I would never do that. Maybe angry. But, you know, of course, the flip side is I'd rather you be angry than not here. Yeah. So I'm going to take the risk. And and yes. And I think that um, you know, we sometimes talk about the five ends, notice, name, normalize, navigate, co-navigate, nurture. And there are lots and lots of ways. I've said this lots of ways. You know, many of us go through points in our life, points of unbearable hurt when thoughts of harm, self-harm, active harm, passive harm. I wish I just, I would love to go to bed and not wake up tomorrow might come up for us. And I want to check in with you because if you're having thoughts or a feeling of harming yourself, I want to be in that with you. I want to be yeah. with you. you know, there, there are lots and lots of ways to approach it. And you're exactly right. The evidence is, you know, it's kind of like you talk to kids about safe sex, they're going to go have sex. Like it's not on teenagers' minds already, right? So it, what it talking to them about sex is it, it encourages them to have safer sex, right? That's, right. that's the end result. Asking the question about whether someone is having thoughts of harming themselves doesn't encourage in any way. In fact, it's very disruptive. There's a great um, parable about a guy walking home. And I think this is applicable in so, 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 so many different circumstances. It's applicable to just how, to, how we physicians support each other right now, how we humans can support each other right now. Guy's walking home late one night and he falls down a dark hole. Walls are steep. He can't get out. There's no exit that he can discern. And along comes a priest and he yells up, hey, father, I'm stuck down here in this hole. Can you help me out? Priest looks down, writes out a prayer, tosses in the hole, walks on. Along comes a doctor. Got to come up with a better second descriptor here. But along comes the doctor. He yells, hey, doc, I'm stuck down in this hole. Can you help me out? Doctor looks down, writes out a prescription, tosses it in the hole and keeps walking. And then along comes a friend. He goes up, oh, Joe, I'm so glad to see you. I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? Joe takes a look down, jumps into the hole with him. He looks at Joe. He says, are you nuts? No, we're both stuck down here. Joe says, yeah, but I've been here before and I know the way out. Mm, I love (laughs) love that. Yeah. I'll I'll be in here with you. And if I don't know the way out, I'll stay here until we figure it out. At least you're not alone in the darkness anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's a, a lovely place to stop. And I will put in the um, show notes some crisis information. There's a really lovely service that our colleagues in psychiatry put together for physicians. And, and that includes medical students and residents, trainees. Um, and it's the physician um, crisis line. And it's uh, 888-491-0141. And it's staffed by psychiatrists. It was developed during the pandemic, and they know that we still need them. So this podcast will air after Physician Suicide Awareness Day, which was seven uh, September 17th. But I think that all days we have to hold in our heart that our colleagues may be hurting and that it's okay to ask. And that, you know, in these what feel like dark times still, I, what we can do is be with each other and... And another podcast I did with Heather Forkey, who is so brilliant. She talks about fight, flight, freeze. But what humans have is affiliate. And that's that being with each other. And I think 
you used other words like connect, you know, that's we're in tribe. We're in tribe together. And and Brene Brown also said another thing that I love when you said same, same, same. She says people, 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 you know. Yeah, we're all people. And I love that too. So, well, I am so grateful that you're in the world doing this work and that we cross paths. And um, I thank you for being you. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me and um, for making those resources available. You're right. Every day needs to be physician health day. Yeah. Yeah. And connection mitigates yeah, trauma. Yeah. And I love you use the word disrupt a lot. In, in the best sense of the word, you know, disrupt a wrong, disrupt the pain, do it differently, you know, um, innovate. So I thank you for that. Well, listen, be well and um, awesome. thank you for connecting. Yeah. Thank you for the time. This podcast episode really brought me to tears and made me so grateful for the practice of medicine and to my colleagues. So here are my takeaways. Number one, thank you to this most amazing and compassionate physician and a huge debt of gratitude for the work she is doing on our behalf. Number two, healing by definition is the process of making or becoming sound or healthy again. And the healer, that's us, is one who alleviates another's distress or anguish. Number three, we are healers in need of our own healing. Number four, trauma is the result of toxic stress, that which is chronic, unrelenting, cumulative, with compounding impact. Number five, this creates feelings of loss of control, unbearable stuckitude, apathy, hopelessness, and helplessness. It's not a great spot to be in if our calling is to heal others. Number six, the pandemic was and is a period of devolution of safety, terror, of death, uncertainty, exhaustion, and grasping for any clarity. As Dr. Saraf said, the brain abhors uncertainty and results sometimes in seeking binary conclusions for relief believe it, it's a real threat, or not, somebody made this up. Is it any wonder that denying the threat feels like relief? Number seven, the brain perceives physical threat and social threat as the same with the resultant response, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Number eight, what we need now as we hemorrhage colleagues due to moral and ethical exhaustion and the inability to fulfill the oath of our calling is genuine inclusion and belonging that provides us safety, that we are truly wanted and needed. Number nine, psychological safety looks like inclusion safety, that I belong, learner safety, that I can learn and grow, contributor safety, that I have something to offer, and ultimately challenger safety, that it's okay to question and to have opinions Number 10, we are seeking the result of challenger safety, the edge of innovation, not groupthink. It is okay to challenge and evolve. Number 11, hope disrupts stress and trauma. Number 12, what makes trauma worse is that it is unrelenting. There is no rest. There is loss of control. 
a lack of resources or lack of access to resources, isolation and loneliness, and also our wiring for negativity that I am the only one. Sounds like a pandemic. Number 13. What makes trauma better? Connection that we can seek and receive. This is a trauma disruptor. Number 14. There is power in naming, sharing, and normalizing. Not just me. Instead, me too. As she put it, same, same, same. Number 15. If you are noticing despair in a colleague or a loved one, ask, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? We can't afford to not ask. And if it's you or a colleague, seek help. There is a lifeline dedicated to helping physicians staffed by caring psychiatrists. The phone number is 888-491-0141. And I'll put that in the show notes along with other links and resources. Number 16, self-compassion is self-care. Please take care of yourselves and I'm grateful for your listenership and that you've been riding this ride with me now for two years. I hope that this finds you in a place that you can rest and seek the comfort of those who know the experience. Because, you know, we as physicians, we all share in this desire to heal and care for others. But in order to do that work, we have to be whole. I hope you'll join me next week and that you take a moment to step away, take a breath, and to find comfort in the connection we have with each other. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.